0: Welcome to season four of Libya Matters. In this season, we're looking at what justice really means. More than a decade after the 2011 uprising. After more than four armed conflicts. After at least three international political processes. And impunity for uncountable violations of human rights law and international humanitarian law. With an incredible lineup of guests. We reflect on all this and the findings of LFJL's year-long survey all across Libya on what Libyans' perceptions of justice are 10 years on. All with the aim of bringing a nuanced understanding to all matters Libya. I'm Marwa Mohammed, And I am Ilham Saoudi. Let's go. Today, I have a new co-host. is on some well-deserved leave, and so I'm joined by the wonderful May Thompson... She does so much of the heavy lifting on Libya Matters behind the scenes. She's also an LFJL rising star in our advocacy team. If you want to see what she's been up to recently, check out our report, No Way Out, which looks at the crimes faced by migrants being trafficked through Libya. It is so good to have her step in front of the microphone and join me today. And Marwa will be back in the next episode.
1: Well, hello, May. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Alham, and and thank you for that lovely introduction. This is strange, but it's so nice to be so close to our listeners. And I'm very excited for today's episode. We are looking at the role that knowing the truth plays in justice mechanisms.
0: I'm really looking forward to it too. I think it's a topic that we at LFJL perhaps are guilty of not discussing enough. I think as lawyers, we can fall into the trap of seeing justice often as just criminal justice, someone behind bars. But with time, I understand that sometimes knowing the truth and having it acknowledged is equally important.
1: And equally as powerful, part of dealing with the truth is reckoning with what it reveals. And this is making me think about questions that I've been thinking about for a long time, but more so since the recent Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020, about what knowing the truth as it relates to slavery and colonialism in Britain and what we do with that information. Many statues in this country still celebrate this era, but as the truth comes to light, is tearing down statues the right thing to do? Personally, I think yes, uh, but there are ongoing debates about how we deal with these issues and it can be difficult terrain to navigate. But with today's guest, uh, we could not be in better hands to help us grapple with these types of questions about finding the truth about the past, acknowledging it openly and publicly, and being able to move forward. Yasmin Suka is a human rights lawyer and the executive director of the Foundation for Human Rights in South Africa. She is the current chair of the United Nations Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan. Prior to this, she served on the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission from 1996 to 2001. She was appointed by the United Nations to serve on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Sierra Leone from 2002 to 2004. And in 2010, she served as a member of the panel of experts on accountability for war crimes in Sri Lanka. I personally could not be
2: more excited for this
1: conversation. Welcome to Libya Matters, Yasmin.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be able to reconnect. And from a distance, I'm really in awe of the way in which you continue, all of you, to keep the issue of Libya on the international agenda. And that's always the first part of the battle, really, for recognition.
0: So it's great to be here. And we know how busy you are. So we're really, really thankful for you finding a little spot uh, for us. So we'll make the most of it. And we'll make sure that our you know we squeeze all we can get out of you for our listeners. Now, long-term listeners will know I love me a definition. So let's start with trying to understand what we mean when we talk about seeking the truth. There are two parts, right? What is the truth? And what does seeking it look like?
2: So what I've always found very helpful is the work of Louis Janet, you know, he was the French magistrate that was sent by the UN Human Rights Committee to Latin America to really explore what was happening around the amnesty questions, which were really proliferating in so many different parts. And arising from his work, um, he produced what became known as, um, you know, the principles to combat impunity and of course, um, you know, there was another rapporteur as well, El-Hajid and his job was actually to look at the socio-economic um, aspects of conflict. And both of them produced incredibly good reports. But it was really Louis Joannet's work which went on to become what I would say is probably the normative framework for this field that we call transitional justice. And Louis Joinet describes four pillars. He talks about the right to truth, the right to justice, the right to reparations, and if we get all of that right, the guarantee of non-recurrence. But I think the most important message from his work was that every victim and their families. Have an imprescriptible right to the truth about what has happened to loved ones, and they have the right to expect that the state will carry out its obligations and ensure proper investigations, truth recovery, and prosecutions where that is possible. And if we talk about the fact that, you know, the right to truth has what I would call two components, obviously, the one right is that of individuals and the rights of families to know what happened to the individual. But actually, when you begin to think about the other angle, which is the right of societies to the truth, to me, that is equally important because that goes to the heart of this question of the structural root causes of violence. And it goes to this question of both recognition, acknowledgement, and accountability, and you know, you begin to look at the problem systemically. And I think that's the challenge that all of us have, which is to be able to appreciate what the individual means. But at the end of the day, it is also about what we give back to our society. Now, in a moment that we are living through, in which there's incredible denial and fake news, you can begin to see how important the truth becomes as a way of catalyzing a society.
0: So a really important component and pillar of this field. And just listening to you there, because I, as you were saying at one part, you raised the question and then you sort of answered it by the end of your what you were saying in the sense that I was saying, well, you know, because the second part of my definition is what does seeking the truth look like? What mechanisms might we use? And then I'm thinking, well, actually thinking now versus, say, 96, when the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission started, there are many ways for people to sort of determine the truth for themselves. Right. You can go online there are people are self-documenting. Uh, uploading um, information, you know, the example you gave me at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, so much of that was self-documentation and and self-defining, if you like, of the truth, that the seeking of it becomes interesting because what mechanisms are we thinking about? And then as we were getting towards the end of your opening remarks and you you mentioned that, oh, but there's also a lot of fake news out there and, and fake information and all of that. And so I guess it makes the question of, what mechanisms we might use, or you know how we seek it. Like that, what does that mean? That seeking, even more important to understand, because there are there is more truth, if you like, quote unquote, to be found.
2: It's a very interesting question because you know when we talk about how do you seek the truth or truth recovery, it can come in many different forms. It can take many forms, and of course, for me, you know the questions of art and theatre and music, and memorialization, and, you know, groups documenting themselves. All of these are incredibly important. But I think that one of the most powerful tools, you know, that you can use for truth recovery is the setting up of an official body. Some countries call it a truth commission. In others, it may take the form of a commission of inquiry. And what makes it special is the fact that there's almost an official sanctioning to it. And in fact, while many of us always know what's actually happened, um, you know, we know what the violence is about. We know who's responsible for it. But there's some fundamental need, really, to have an official body having gone through a process in which they've trawled through documents and archives, they've listened to the testimonies of both victims and perpetrators and witnesses. They've gone through the submissions of many institutions on an issue, and they arrive almost at a factual summing up of what the issues are and who is responsible. And that official record is something that I would say is almost like an insurance policy for a country. Because once it's there, You can't negate it. You can critique it. You can do what you like. But having an official record about the truth of the past is really critical. And that's why these, um, you know, truth commissions, commissions of inquiries, fact-finding bodies, and even, you know, the tribunals that have been set up to deal with individual criminal accountability, they become important because they restore to some extent an official narrative of what happened in the past. And that's a very important process for a society to undergo and to have. Because you know, fifty years after the conflict, what do people actually know? What does the next generation know? And the one thing that you have to deal be able to deal with is to confront the denial that will always come from those um, who don't really agree or support these processes. Or who are uncomfortable because it disturbs the political elite version of the way in which they have lived their lives. Mm, yeah, yeah, I know
1: that's so interesting. And, and thinking about the different ways that you were talking about, about sort of gathering this official record of, of what happened, it's making me think about well, when do we know when we've found the truth? How do we know that we've reached the end of this process? Because, you know, in many contexts, you could keep truth seeking for for years and years and years, there's so many violations that have happened and sort of who decides, well, two questions. Firstly, wh- when do we know when this official record is, is complete? When do we know, okay, the truth, we found out the truth, you know, our mission is complete and who decides that as well?
2: Um, I mean, that's a really important question because I think your struggle for the truth is never really complete. It can take decades and I'll give you an example two examples, actually, which, you know, in in the South African context, um, the commission was given a kind of almost three-year mandate in which there were a range of different processes taking place, both the truth recovery through the investigations by one committee, then, of course, the amnesty process, which was really trying to obtain the truth from perpetrators. But at the end of that, the commission had to compile a report. And in fact, it was regarded as the most authoritative account of what had happened during the years of apartheid and the conflict really around the question of crimes against humanity. And in fact, that was what we sort of handed officially to the government. But it didn't stop there. And everybody in the country knew that there were other processes which were going to take place. And one of those related to The fact that if you had not applied for amnesty, if you'd been refused amnesty, then the law would follow its course and prosecutions would ensue. And in fact, this has been a 23-year struggle in my country, mounted by families of victims, the Foundation for Human Rights, supported by an incredible legal team headed by advocate Howard Vani, where we have forced the state to reopen inquests into people who had allegedly taken their own lives. And thus far, we've had three very successful rulings which have overturned rulings by earlier inquest magistrates. And we're about to go into, um, you know, three trials. And so we've continued really to build on this narrative of what happened in our past, and so I see this as a constant journey that you work, but it builds on the work that has gone before. I give you another example. For instance, in the case of Sri Lanka, you know, at the time when this war ended in two thousand and nine, the Secretary General managed to bring out of the then President of Sri Lanka. Mahinda Rajapaksa, an agreement that he would look into accountability and the allegations of the war crimes that people were saying had taken place. And after a while, when this didn't happen, the Secretary General used that agreement to actually set up his own panel, which I served on, and that was to confirm really the credibility of the allegations that in fact war crimes had taken place. And of course, needless to say, we not only found that the allegations were credible, but we also found that in the main, the army had been responsible for the war crimes that had taken place and that there had been um, you know, judicial execution, summary executions of the political leadership who had surrendered. Um, we knew that more than 100,000 people were said to be missing. And we actually found that probably about 40,000 civilians had been killed. But we didn't end there. We also said that there would be a need for a proper investigation. Because remember, what we were doing was testing allegations. Now, it took from 2011 to 2015 for the United Nations to mandate the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights to conduct an investigation. And of course, in the course of that investigation, supported by a lot of the work that my colleague Francis Harrison was doing in the UK, documenting what was emerging from the war zone, we were able to assist the OISL inquiry to in fact begin to find victims who are now coming out of the war zone and who were actually freer to talk. And in that way, they then produced what has really become, I suppose, a major report on which everyone builds. But that's not where the story ended. And, you know, one of the things that the ITJP has been doing is as people finally get out of Sri Lanka, and it takes some of them between five and ten years before they can get out, we've been able to use um, a number of um, investigators trained by the PSVI some of them who work for the Bar Human Rights in the UK, some of them who work for the Office of the High Commissioner, and they've documented not only the war crimes and crimes against humanity, but they've also documented the ongoing violations that have continued to take place in Sri Lanka. And with each new lot of statements you take, you begin to unpack even more evidence around what happened You're able to do a better analysis. And I would say that, in fact, probably we have begun to tell the story of the war, which even builds on and expands on the version that was produced by the High Commissioner's Office. But the other challenge for us was in the absence of a criminal accountability mechanism, both internationally and domestically, what could you do with all of the material that you were recovering? And we started to use that to build dossiers on individual perpetrators. We've managed to get some of them sanctioned. And we're also beginning to make the links between the human rights violations and the international crimes and fraud and corruption. And so, you know, it's about thinking outside of the box, actually.
3: Hi, my name is Sonia Markova and uh, I'm a research fellow with uh, the Lawyers for Justice in Libya. And I have uh, been working on the research on the justice perception in Libya. Truth was absolutely highlighted as a very urgent uh, need to start investigating, documenting and telling the truth about the different violations um, committed in Libya. Over ninety percent of the survey respondents, and as well as the expert interviewed, they agreed that establishing the truth about the past and the current atrocity should be the utmost priority, um, because they see that this is important to facilitate a credible accountability process and to um, and to pave the way for accountability. In terms of what they what people wanted to discover through the truth process, they wanted to reveal the root causes, the reason and motives behind the conflicts and the violence. So not only the not only to establish the crime, but only the root also the root causes and why these crimes were, were committed. So also the respondents, they wanted the truth process to identify not only the direct perpetrators but also all those who ordered, instigated, aided and abetted crimes, and all those who facilitated the commission of the crimes. So they wanted, as I said, the truth process to reveal the hidden hands and faces that they involved. Not only the one that they have seen, but the one who are behind all these crimes.
0: And a lot of what you're talking about makes me think about God. That's a lot of work and it's a lot of weight to put on those who are heading a commission or who are part of a commission. And so it brings me to the the who, which in processes like these more than anything else really comes down to it. Right. I think in, in some level in a criminal proceeding, yes, the, the car, you know, the individual judges will have an impact, but they are more strictly bound in what they can do. But there's a lot more freedom in a, in a truth process um, to determine your own way of doing it. Um, uh, well, you know, the commissioners will decide when there's enough to issue a report. So they'll decide when the, you know, the question of when the truth has been found to a degree. And so who the who fascinates me because ultimately, really the truth will depend on who writes it. <laughs> um, and... What is covered? When you stop digging, who you know who is sitting on this commission? All these questions. And so, how do we decide that those people in a commission are the right people? And um, and what's the weight between you know, say, a process like the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was you know, enti- entirely local people, right? I think if I remember correctly, or um, to more internationalized processes that we're seeing now, where those determining the truth are external, um, perhaps more independent, one might argue, actors. And I think there it's, it, you know, it really comes down to the identity of the individuals and the credibility of the process to a certain degree, well, almost entirely depends on that. And so I guess maybe I'll, I'll ask it in an objective way and how do we determine this? But I'll also use the privilege of knowing that I've got someone who's very candid in front of me and say how or what makes you feel confident to say yes. I will be part of a commission of inquiry. I feel I can, I could be that person.
2: Ooh, that's a,
0: <laughs> you know, that's That's not okay. scripted. I'm like, you're here. I'm going to ask you this.
2: It, it's a very interesting question because, you know, when the South African discussion started, I was a part of the interfaith community and the minister of justice who was appointed, Dala Omar, was the first minister that President Mandela appointed when the newly elected Government came to power. But what was shocking for me was that Dalla was our mentor. And when the interim constitution was signed, um, all of us discovered the next day that actually, in the interim negotiations, they had agreed to this amnesty. Now, granted, um, they didn't agree on the conditions or the ambits, all of those sorts of things. But I felt like many other lawyers, we felt betrayed. And I remember phoning him and like screaming and saying, you know, like you you've let us all down. And in his very calm way, because he was that kind of person, he said, Well, you know, you guys, you can sit outside and you can scream and shout, or you can think about how to engage with this process so that it isn't administrative, it doesn't happen behind closed doors and actually becomes an accountability process in which victims play a central role. And that was quite a challenge. So in the human rights community and the religious community, we had to decide, are we going to participate or not? And eventually we decided to form a coalition. I think there were more than 50 organizations. And the first part was going around and asking questions of victim communities across the country around how they understood the deal, what they would want to see and For me, it was quite shocking because I was shocked that victims said, well, if Mandela is willing to forgive and reach out, then who are we? But all of them made the point that we want to be able to see the perpetrator. We want to be able to ask them questions directly. And so the process in which we engaged in the determination of the law, um, we actually... Ensure that that would be possible, that victims could object to the amnesty process. They could have lawyers um, appointed for them. They could have um, their lawyers cross-examine perpetrators, and they could oppose the process completely. And then, of course, we also argued for a separate stream for victims to be able to come and speak about what had happened to them. But then the next bit came in, and that is, If this is going to be the most important commission in our country, who should be the people who sat on it? And we decided, as civil society, that we would go to the president and the minister and say, we want you to set up a proper, independent, open process in which the commissioners are selected. We need people to be able to nominate people. They should be interviewed. They should be screened and vetted. And... From that, they should give a list to the president so that we discount the political, um, you know, influence on the process. But what I found extraordinary was we go to see the Minister of Justice. And before the meeting starts, he calls me out and he says, you are going to sit on my commission, aren't you? And I say, well, actually, I'm here to propose an alternative process for you. And then we outlined in this meeting what we wanted, and the president agreed. And so his own legal advisor, Fink Haysom, and Dalla's legal advisor, the two of them chaired the committee, but they brought on board representatives of civil society, the religious community, and of course, every political party had a person represented there. And we actually helped to define the criteria this. But I think where we were very smart was that we demanded that the process should take place via public interviews. Now, I can't remember how many applications they got, but they whittled that down to around 43 people. And people were interviewed all over the country. What's extraordinary is that I was quite, I had the flu that day. And when I went for my interview, I got caught in an argument with the right wing, because they asked me who should sit on this committee, and I said only people with a track record of having worked in human rights and who worked against um, you know, the injustices in South Africa. And they said to me, so you don't believe in reconciliation? And I said, not if it's built on false premises. And after that moment, I kind of thought, oh, I'm out of this process. And Fink Haysom tells the story that the there were a, at least 10 people who went through without any problems. Everybody loved them, gave the right answers, all of that. But there were a few of us where um, they just said, no, we shouldn't sit on there. So what he did one night is he got them all drunk and he traded <laughs> people. He traded people. So like the right wing said, they wanted X, then he would say, well, if you want X, then we want her on this. And there were a few of us who got in that way. And what's extraordinary, of course, is that the people they didn't want then go on to become the sort of strongest voices for victims and for justice in the commission. And so one of the things I've always said is that your selection of commissioners is critical. The question of whether they should be nationals or internationals, depends really on the context of the country and whether you can find a mix of people that people in your country will unequivocally support if the name is mentioned. Now, an example of of this is like Kenya, where Kenya also went through a process, and they had both nationals and internationals. But the chair of the commission never disclosed that he was going to be implicated in a matter that fell within the commission's mandate. And so, of course, this comes to the commission quite early on. And his deputy says to him, well, you have to step down and resign, and he refuses to. And so eventually she steps down and she resigns. The internationals manage to get him to to go off, but he comes back at the time when the report is being written. And, of course, he plays quite a pivotal role in ensuring that the government, you know, fiddles with some of the findings. In Sierra Leone, my understanding is that the United Nations, together with the African Union, decided on the internationals and that the nationals were chosen through a public process. I think you have to vet and screen people. Even in, you know, um, international commissions of inquiry, you don't always get the right people, and you have one person that is destructive, and it can destroy the work of a commission. So I always argue that um, the people they appoint should be people. If you raise their names across the board, irrespective of which political persuasion you come from, there will be consensus that you regarded as independent, and you won't bow to, you won't become a state lackey, because that's the real question will you be influenced by the state or by the political elites or the powers that be? Those are the things you have to watch.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, and it's so great to hear about these sort of commissions from your your personal experiences and you know all the different contexts that you've worked on. And I think drawing that then to the, the Libya context, we've had a number of our own commissions of inquiry and OHCHR reports. Uh, we have a current uh, but maybe not for much longer. Fact-finding mission into looking at the truth, but how well these uh, investigations and mechanisms have done in Libya in determining the truth remains questionable. At, at the very least, it, it's nice to hear you talking about uh, processes that have been human rights centred and you know positive in in their success. But when it comes to Libya, uh, it's not necessarily the case. Is is that right?
0: No, and, and I. Well, first, I want to note that Yasmin didn't ask my didn't answer my my second question about whether how she how she feels comfortable saying yes. But I'll but I'll let it go. I'll let it go. Um, but I think that what we've seen in Libya is so far the processes have have been internationalized, and there hasn't been transparency really about how people have been selected. There've been UN led processes, and so they're they're by appointment. But you know, on what basis the people were selected is never really clear. One thing I remember, which I won't name which commission, and I, I certainly won't name the person, but there were common people that the person who was appointed and I had. And so I thought, oh, this is an opportunity to really support this this commission. And I reached out and I said, look, you know, you're based in the UK, we're based in the UK. If there's anything we can do to support you in preparing for this, uh, we know Libya is not your country of focus. Uh, we can you know, provide you with background information, et cetera. And the response came back saying oh, that's really kind, but that that might not be good for my perceptions of independence. And so for me, it was this really bizarre situation of actually almost a a level of arrogance that, you know, he did not need. And obviously it's a he, because it always would be a he. felt that he didn't need the assistance, um, that he could find the information himself. And you know at the time like well fine but we're available should you need it and the irony is a few few months later when their work started they needed to reach out to us formally because they couldn't get access to victims because they didn't have credibility on the ground and so for me i think there was this moment of going this isn't what you describe of it being um a process that is supportive of victims that is human rights based that is about um you know, accounted, you know, it, creating a culture where people feel comfortable talking about these issues. And it's, you know, it was very much an up down process. It was very much, uh, we will do what's minimally required for us to produce a report. And we will come to you for technical assistance, but we don't want you to give us context, actually. And I think that's tarnished perhaps some of the processes in the country. And and, and often they don't come to the country because of the security, you know, under the guise of the security. But then how do you engage properly with those affected by all this? So I guess trying to bring your expertise into the Libyan context, how do you overcome these obstacles to ensure that a process is credible and those leading it, because it is about the individual's, are trustworthy or people feel a connection to them or affini- even an affinity to them on some level you need.
2: I think that like um, some, you know, and, and I would argue that in fact, one thing with these international commissions is that often, you know, the process of determining who serves is really left to, you know, these bodies that are often responsible. And sometimes it can be the emergency unit in the office of the high commissioner who sets up a list of names that goes to the president of the council and maybe states who have an interest in it sort of lobby him and that's the way in which people are are kind of selected. I would argue then, in fact, that this is where civil society has to play an important role and they have to be fairly vocal in engaging with both the president of the council, member states who take on the responsibility for handling a resolution on a state and the Office of the High Commissioner, and it should even go so far as indicating, you know, who you think are suitable people, that people would accept, because I think that's the, the sort of start of the process. My own sense of both domestic commissions and international ones that have been successful have only been successful because the commissions have managed to engage with civil society groups, not just to take, but to engage in a discussion on what the important issues are that you think they should be looking at. And that's the first rule of the game, that there needs to be a synergy, really, between the structures that are set up and the expectations that, um, you know, civil society victims and survivors have. And that engagement can then produce... Um, some areas of commonality, but it also could be about what may be the sharp divisions. But, you know, independence, you know, the, I, and this is something that we have tackled a lot with, um, you know, the High Commissioner. And as an, as an NGO, you know, I, it, it, interestingly, when the OISL inquiry was set up, um, I started to have my first meetings with the coordinator for the team and initially, it was about, oh, um, just give us give us the names of witnesses and give us the contact details. And we had to go back and, of course, get the consent to give them the information. But as the pressure hotted up and they realized that they don't really have the context, the knowledge, or the capacity, the next thing it became was about, besides setting up the interviews, can you give us their statements? And I said, we won't give you their statements but we'll give you summaries of their statements. And if you think that it's relevant, then we will go back and arrange for you to meet them. And that way we set up meetings. We also, eventually we gave them redacted documents. One of the battles we're having now with them is that at that point we didn't have a memorandum which set out that they had to destroy the information. And I think that they simply handed that over to the current mechanism. So I'm engaged in a little bit of a legal tussle with them around how they handle that material because all of us are bound by GDR rules around information, also consent. People may have been willing to speak 10 years ago. It doesn't mean that they're ready now. But that's one element of it, the arrogance. And I think that this is something that I would say you need to set up meetings with a high commissioner and a deputy. And you almost have to insist that they have to set up a mechanism where they engage with civil society. Firstly, they're the question of the individual organizations who document and who can pass on material. But secondly, it is also about discussing a country context which you know best, and we there have to come back and report to you because accountability doesn't work one way only; it has to work on, you know, both sides. And if you look at the triple IM for Syria, you know, the one thing that Michelle Jarvis has done has set up this sort of regular group. I think one day. They meet amongst themselves, then they meet with a mechanism. And the third time, all of the donors come in as well. I think Belarus tried to set that up as well. But then they had a lot of difficulty with a coordinator who was fighting not just with people in her own team, but with civil society groups. And, you know, the one thing they don't appreciate is that at a technological level, civil society is often much more savvy. the streets ahead of them. And they can only benefit from what is emerging. So, I think the notion of, um, you know, not engaging because it affects your independence—that's absolute rubbish. You know, in Sri Lanka, we were not allowed to go into the country. I travelled with a team all over Europe and different countries in Asia, where I didn't only meet individual um, survivors. I meet with groups, explained to them, did a lot of focus group discussions. Because you also, you don't know the country really, and you have to be alert to the fact that there are so many different narratives. And, and, you know, that goes, if you, I don't know if Albie spoke to this, but what I've always found helpful in is using what Albie brought to the South African Commission, which is you have many different notions of the truth, right? You, we, we see things from many different angles. But at the end of the day, a truth commission has to arrive at a set, a narrative really, which not only acknowledges that different people have had different narratives, but at the end of the day, when you set that aside, the facts and the evidence and what you've done in terms of your own fact finding, you should be able to provide a a version which everybody can live with. And he talked about You know, the dialogical truth, which comes from this engagement of listening, of hearing, the social truth, um, the forensic truth, which, I mean, I can tell you in my own country how many courts of law got it all wrong. And now we're unraveling that. So even that notion of forensic is contested. So I think that, you know, on both sides, you can't do this without civil society. In South Sudan, to be honest, we wouldn't have access to communities, and to victims in the way that we do, if civil society groups working with victims and survivors in different parts haven't made, firstly, access available, but secondly, also helped in terms of producing some of the first records, which we then go in and build on. So um, it's a fallacy to believe you can do it without that. But it's also about civil society beginning to take a stand and to say these are our rights, um, this is what we year for, and you have to take us seriously on these issues. And the other thing is to make sure donors actually begin to push the idea that they have to engage.
0: Mm. And I can't tell you how true this rings um, to to what we're going through. And the problem with the arrogance. So you know, we at out of jail can swallow it in a little bit. But I don't expect that from civil society on the ground that is doing, you know, some of the toughest, toughest work to be shut down at the beginning and then when, you know, they come back to you later because they really can't do it without you, of course, they're going to be um, resistant and not particularly inclined to, to support you. And and it's such a shame because then, you know, you don't get credibility without buy-in. And the buy-in is what civil society can also do, right? If, a, if you are seen to be working with local civil society, you know, Libyan civil society in our context, that can only help your credibility as an international body. But yeah, I mean, I could go on this for a long time, but uh, I uh, I mean, I
2: do think that um, one of the things that we we all ought to be doing is maybe to look at the different civil society groups, both internationals and domestically, who've been working with bodies and perhaps choose a few representatives and ask for a meeting with um, the high commissioner, the president of the council to really begin to explore this question of what does it mean to engage with civil society and what should be some of the ground rules? Because you see, it's also the arrogance of officials and bureaucrats and the staff who support these structures. And maybe experts take their cue from them until they begin to get into trouble. Then suddenly they start to backtrack. But it may be too late because you've caused an incredible amount of anger and i i honestly believe that this has become a very serious issue and if we need to put it on the table if this is about you know survivors victim-centered and civil society is important then why not engage with them from set?
1: I couldn't agree more. And I think we were talking before we started recording about this notion of humility. And I think it's so important. And I think these you know, international investigations could definitely benefit from, um, yeah, just sort of centering humility in, in their work. And yeah, it's so lovely to hear you talk about the the vital work of civil society. We're huge advocates at LFJL, um, you know, for protecting the, the civic space and making sure that you know our partners can can do the work as Alham said that you know the dangerous at times work as well. So yeah, that's super interesting.
0: No, and, and I and I just conscious of you know there's so much more we want to talk to you about, but I think this is an important point to pause at because in the context of Libya, it is a phenomenally internationalized conflict, phenomenally internationalized. Um, and, you know, um, May mentioned in, in passing that we we really don't know if the fact-finding mission will be renewed in Libya and it will end up being the shortest in history if it doesn't get renewed because it's only been working for about six months by the time every, you know, all the red tape had, had been dealt with. And the reason it's not going to be renewed is because of the multitude of actors in Libya who now have either lost interest or this isn't a priority or this is just a nuisance or or whatever and they need to kind of put their mind and resources elsewhere and there isn't really a call for it to be renewed and and Libya as a state has said publicly that they don't intend they don't want to support a renewal and because Libya's and for those you know listeners who are to the technicalities of the UN is an item 10. And so this, you know, this requires their buy-in for it to be renewed um, at the Human Rights Council. And so we're facing a situation because we have a disengaged Libyan state at the moment um, because of upcoming uh, elections, et cetera. But we also have an international community who's not going to pick up the slack if Libya loses interest in this. And so we end up in a situation where we face a real end to this process in a, in a most unsatisfactory way. And there again, you get into the situation of, well, then, okay, this international process, we keep driving it and we keep pushing for it. And we did a lot of work for many years to get it into place in the first place a civil society. Now it might end, so we then turn. Okay, well, what's happening domestically? And this is the kind of question. When we had our first attempt um, in in 2013, so very soon after the the, the uprising, to put in place a, a truth commission um, in Libya, and that hasn't really seen the light of day. There was another attempt um, more recently through the political dialogue um, forum. It's still a very nascent idea and it still hasn't taken root. And it looks like that process in its entirety is now redundant. And so that won't happen. So um, my question is, again, I guess what I want to think out loud with you about is these processes keep failing in Libya. We have not had a, a satisfying truth finding process and I wonder—is it because of timing? Are we trying to find the tr- truth too soon? Are we too much in it to be able to kind of get it? Um, because I can't figure out why there isn't the kind of longevity to really stick through this to try and find out what's happening. Um, and and I and I yeah. So I guess that's the question. It's the most probably the most ineloquent way I've ever phrased the question. But is it is it timing? Is there a proper time to do this? And does that require some distance um, and clarity of mind to achieve? I think
2: timing is is always kind of interesting. And, you know, in in 2015 on the Sri Lanka issue, when the ink had hardly been dry on the resolution and the, the good governance government said, well, we're not setting up the hybrid court. And then nevertheless, the international community put in a whole lot of technical support processes to set up a truth commission. And, of course, that didn't materialize. And they set up a very flawed office of missing persons and reparations. And both of them have become quite mired in controversy. So I think the question of of timing is important. Um, But, you know, in in this period, I, I would argue that there never is the right time And, you know, during this period, it's really important to kind of continue, firstly, with the documentation, but secondly, to begin to unpack why it's important that one does have a process of truth recovery, because the truth recovery is able to go beyond the politics of the immediate um, state, and in fact can go back looking at structurally what the problem is in Libya, including the role of the international community, because often the internationalization of the conflict is also linked to why processes become suppressed. Um, because and, and also, you also have this thing about the international community moving on to new spaces. And so I would argue that this is kind of a really critical period to begin firstly to think about, If we were to set this commission up now, what would it look like? What would its mandate be? What would we see as the critical issues that should be taken up? And how do we see, you know, how do we ensure that it builds rather than polarizes because it's focusing on one issue rather than another? And then I would really start to think about how can we begin to engage with different actors, I would map them and say, what is our political leverage to begin having this discussion? You know, often people talk about political will, but political will is something that civil society creates because it is able to find leverage points and it is able to use them. Another example, you know, um, we unsuccessfully launched a universal jurisdiction case in Latin America, and we caused the general to flee. But then we compiled a dossier which we handed over to U.S. State Department. And because it suited their political interests, he was sanctioned with his family and he can't travel. And it sent a message to Sri Lanka that even though the U.S. wanted to resume normal foreign relationships, they were willing to send messages that they were not taking their eyes off the poor. And so your conversation has to be with both political actors inside your country, but also those member states who have a modicum of interest. But you almost have to tell them what it is that you're looking at. And you have to think about what's the minimum I want from from them? What is my time scale to begin to look at what what we can set up in terms of an official body? And what are those points of leverage that we can use? And I know you do this already, but you know, there's no harm in visiting different countries and speaking directly in capitals to the people whose desk, you know, purview this is. Because that way you keep the issue on the agenda, but you're also ready to move in when that opportunity arises. And it's sheer politics, but it's hard work because. It takes time, but it's about the lobbying and advocacy you're going to be doing at uh, many different ranges, including speaking to different interest groups, survivors groups, people who've been in prisons for a long time, all of those kind of complex categories, because that's the way you will create the political will to begin to see um, at least a discussion on what a truth recovery process in Libya could look like. And you begin to lay the ground for it. And I think to also really focus on this question of how do Libyans actually have ownership of this process? Because I think that can become a problem too when it's so internationalized that people say, this is not about me. And so you know, that question of going back to grassroots, um, the kind of things you guys did, how can you do that? And the, the other thing is thinking about those dossiers of key people who still hold power, And how you can use them at some, you know, point. Because nothing stays the same. You know, as I said, in my own country, 23 years, and every time we've had a case, it's because we litigated against the state. So how do you begin to build support? Because you have to build a constituency for what you want. You have some of that, but you've got to think that mapping of different actors, what would be your leverage points for them? That is critical because now may be the period when you want to quietly build if you anticipate that the mandate of the structure is not going to be removed. Um, it's an interesting space for creativity, actually, and not accepting the norm. Absolutely. and And there's a lot of work to do and thinking
1: about the the who and the how is actually making me think about the why as well. And as we're coming to a close, I mean, we could sit and talk to you <laughs> for hours and hours about, about these questions, but it's really bringing me back to something that you mentioned at, at the top when we started um, about the why, um, why we do we do truth-seeking and, you know, is it an end in itself that, or is it part of a, a larger process uh, for the individuals and for the victims? But as you said as well, you know, for the collective society. So, yeah, maybe we could just just end with that. Why, why truth-seeking? Why, why is it important?
2: I, I mean, for me, it's all, you know, it, w- when I started work probably 30 years ago, people would say it was about an exceptional moment in legal history when you su- suspended the normal rules around accountability um, and you had this transitional justice process to deal with abuses committed by states. But when you look at the evolution of it, for many of us, it has become a tool to build a more just society. And a society in which different groups have been marginalized, discriminated against, and where structurally very powerful elites control the society. So it's about restoring what our notions of democracy is and ensuring that the state can work for each one of us irrespective of who we are, where we come from. And that's the new society you want to build. It's your vision. So, you know, your, your process, the truth is one part of that, but it walks along other rule of law institutions so that you build democracy. That's how you have to see it. That's a good
0: moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's one last bit we like to do, uh, which is meant to be like a very quick gut reaction it's called debunking the narrative so we tell you a sentence that we hear and in the fewest possible words well hopefully you disagree with it but you might agree so let us know what you think of it okay i'll I'll do the first one May. yeah sure truth commissions are for countries that don't have the power to prosecute
2: it can start off that way but not necessarily so Great. Very concise. <laughs> uh, so I just have one more for you as well.
1: So it is either truth or prosecution. You can't have your cake and eat it.
2: I think you you use the one to build the other. And you, you anybody who tells you you're going to have prosecutions, um, they're not telling you the truth. In fact, prosecutions themselves are fairly selective. And so having a truth recovery process, which you use to build for prosecutions, is quite important, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I also have just a problem with that phrase, just as a a, a side note, surely you need to have your cake to be able to eat it. Like I never understood (laughs) that as a phrase, but maybe we can have that conversation (laughs) socially sometime as a concept, I'm like, well, how are you gonna eat it if you don't have your cake? Um, But on that very philosophical point, um, thank you so much, Yasmin, for your time. We really, I really cherished it. Hi,
1: May speaking again. In this LFJL Explains, I'll be bringing you a few updates on the United Nations Truth Investigation that is currently ongoing in Libya, that is, the Independent Fact-Finding Mission, or FFM. If you're familiar with LFJL's work, or you're a regular listener of Libya Matters, you'll know that the fact-finding mission on Libya has been a big priority for us for a number of years. LFJL was heavily involved in advocating for its establishment, and in June 2020, long overdue, we got that. However, numerous obstacles, including UN budgetary constraints and difficulties related to the COVID-19 pandemic, severely hampered the FFM's ability to do its work. By October 2021, when it presented its first report to the Human Rights Council, the permanent team had only been functional for four months. Given this, the Human Rights Council extended the mandate of the FFM, but only for a further nine months until June 2022. But with the renewal came further bureaucratic delays. With the mission still not operating at full capacity and with very little time left, the FFM is unlikely to fulfill its broad mandate by June. The mandate being all violations of international human rights law and international humanitarian law committed throughout the entire country from 2016 to present. This is particularly worrisome given that in its first report and its interim update in March 2022, the FFM already presented evidence of crimes against humanity and war crimes. Nevertheless, in a recent statement, the Libyan delegation stated that it will consider the FFM's mandate as complete in June 2022, when the current extension ends. Given that the FFM will not have in fact completed its mandate by this time, failure to further renew the FFM would send a dangerous message to actors in Libya that the international community is not committed to ensuring accountability for past and ongoing human rights violations and abuses and could encourage further crimes and lawlessness during this critical period. LFJL is urgently advocating for a full renewal of the FFM's mandate so the necessary truth seeking in Libya can continue as a step towards accountability and justice. To keep up to date with the latest FFM developments, you can sign up to our newsletter by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode.
0: In next week's episode, we explore.
2: You have uh, prosecution, defense, and judges
0: basically are more passive. In a civil law system, victims were always part and parcel with it. And the judges had a much more active role in terms of their evaluation of evidence. So I think with respect to the International Criminal Court and its procedure, it's not a common law process. It's somewhat in between the two legal systems. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Libya Matters, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is hosted by me, Marwa Mohammed and Alham Saudi. It is produced by Demirin Media. The people who put season four of Libya Matters together are May Thompson, Alexandra Azua, Marwa Mohammed, and me. It was made possible by contributions from the LFJL team, Mohammed Al-Masiri, Mohammed Al-Mustafa, Rawia Hamza, Christina Orsini, Mirna Nasrallah, and Jürgen Scher. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with International Media Support, IMS.